0: Okay, let's uh, continue where we left off. Um, a, few, a little bit of unfinished business about just being here, not, and then about sitting meditation, and then um, see if the Kalama Sutta, if you recall, uh, that we went into a little bit, how to bring that into daily life, because for me it's an extremely practical teaching. Uh, and if it weren't, it would be interesting uh, to, to read, but it wouldn't be of much use. It, it is practical, but you have to do it. Um, if you recall, what was uh, the essence of it, to review a little bit, is that um, there, there are ten don'ts, things that uh, he's telling the column not to do and they've been misinterpreted as absolutes. Can you hear me in the back? Yes? Okay. Um, and they aren't. What the Buddha actually, the, the thrust of the Buddha's teachings, it's not only this sutra, but if you put it in the context of lots of exchanges with people, most of these teachings are exchanges, dialogues, discussions. Um, what, is, what the Buddha is concerned with is absolute slavish, blind obedience to anything, including his own teaching. Okay. Uh, so that it's not that logic is out, or reason is out, or teachers are out, or ancient texts are out, uh, or there are a number of other things mentioned. Um, it's that, that attitude of when we, we grasp onto it and make it stand for absolute truth, and there's no investigation. It's not tested with our life. Uh, then it can lead to trouble. And I think you can see that all over. It's not just religions that do that, but uh, spiritual sect, uh, sex meditation groups do it. Uh, everyone does it. We, t- we tend to find something, that, a little enclave of security. And temporarily it gives us a nice feeling of being okay. It's a seeming security, but it isn't real security. Okay. So the Buddha is... Opening that up and he's saying that test it test it with your life but he's also so, so it's this twofold thing of t- uh, of taking the taking into account the counsel of the wise that's a general phrase but w- he also uses the phrase when you know for yourself both use both it's not either or there uh, there are lots of wise people who've come before us in many different cultures all over the planet we'd be foolish not to to at least listen to what, what they've learned in their lives. And, but then finally, uh, the test has to be in our own. So uh, how would that apply, for, for example, to just sitting? It, let's take choiceless awareness. I know Michael left that for me to, me- to clean up the mess on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 20 years of being abused by Michael. <laughs> Um, let's say a, a thought comes up in the mind and the thought is uh, you are not cut out for this meditation you're a rotten meditator you'll never learn this stuff keep your day job Okay, you, uh, and you had the fantasy I think I'm going to be a Dharma teacher like Michael and Larry they strut around like they're important and people seem to look at them and ask them questions I like that you know I think I'll be that. And then this voice says, it's not for you. Keep doing what you're doing. It's, it, you, you're not a good meditator. You can't concentrate. You don't care about other people. None of it. <laughs> and then if you identify with it, then you make, I'm no good. And if you make, no, I'm no good, then you are no good, in effect. So a lot of what's happening to us is exactly that. Uh, what happens is we're believing, Uh, a lot of what we call the self, maybe all of it, is notions that the mind has. It tells us who we are, it tells us who we were, it tells us who we could be, it tells us who other people are, and we believe it all. We take that to be accurate perception, that we're really seeing things exactly as they are. Whereas really we're seeing through yesterday's eyes. We're seeing through our conditioning, our history. Okay, now if you identify with that, then that would be, uh, from the point of view of the Buddha's teaching, that would be unskillful. Because, first of all, you're already suffering. Maybe you maybe uh, uh, not only are you suffering, but uh, you're creating self. Now, we'll get to that more when we come into daily life, but I, I have to start it right now. Finally, the Buddha, uh, in a number of teachings, says. He gives the, the most brief summary of what finally he's teaching, uh, because he's pressed by someone. And what he says was, uh, all of my teachings, all the teachings, all the practices, everything that I've said, is 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 this: do not attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Do not attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Now. What a term being used a lot in Dharma circles, and I think it's a good term, selfing. So when, you, when the thought comes up that you're a rotten meditator, and then you, it's just a thought, and you grab onto it, and then you give it reality, and then it has consequences. How you, your emotions, how you relate to people, and then you, you etc. cetera. Uh, you've created a self, that's selfing. You've taken some notion, something in the mind, and you've used it to define yourself. And in, you know, in all the groups, many of you start off by characterizing yourself. I'm a such and such kind of person. I have, I'm a this, I'm a that. Uh, and you have all kinds of labels. I'm not saying there isn't some degree of truth in it, but that, from this point of view, is selfing. You made yourself into a whatever it is. A one, I'm wonderful. I'm horrible. Now, I feel for the beginners here because uh, you've heard things about not self, and this is none of this is true. It's not. It's all an illusion. That's frightening. But who's scared? It's the very same self, don't you? You see, it's the ego that it sees where this is all going. It's not stupid. Quite the contrary. You're up against someone way smarter than Einstein. You. Uh, Because, uh, for example, when we get to silence and you hear things like, silence is very shy, uh, you can't get in there, no no thinking allowed, at least to begin with. Well, that means there's a sign on the door leading to silence, no ego allowed. Don't you think the ego sees that? And it's going to fight everything in life it wants to stay alive until it can't and uh, so those little pieces in sitting so that let's say if that same thought comes up you're a rotten meditator it comes up and you're aware of it and you don't push it away nor do you identify with it you're just aware of it without judging it it's just what it is a thought it does its blah 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 and then it disappears into who knows where same place it came from We don't know where that is either. Well, it's secreted by the brain, let's say, a very subtle energy. Um, It's not a problem. You didn't self in that moment. uh, But you see, now how would you test that? You're not suffering, certainly. How would you test that? See if that's so. See if what I just said is so. See if when you uh, get attached to certain things, either fight with them, try to get rid of what you don't want, struggle. And there's a lot of ways to avoid being with what is One is you deny it. Uh, Another one is you drown in it. That's very common too. Or we have brilliant escape hatches from it, and all none of that is practice. That's what we're already masters of. We know how to do that. That's part of the ego's brilliance. It doesn't want look. Self-deception is huge in in human beings. Huge. Now we might say, well, then let's not deceive ourselves. But then that's the whole point. We don't know we're deceiving ourselves, that's why it's called self-deception. <laughs> uh, if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be, you'd know this is nonsense and it's not a problem. We don't know that, we, we really believe it. But when you come here and sit silently, I don't know if it's so, for, but I, in my experience, a lot of these things, they just don't stand up, even if you didn't hear teachings like this, because you can see, for example. The next thought after you're a rotten meditator, uh, just drop it. The next thought might be, no, be compassionate to yourself. You're a very good person. And uh, you have just as much right to be a meditator as anyone else here. That's right, I do. So, well, which, <laughs> then you identify with that. Now it's a new self thing. Well, which one is true? Uh, I don't know which one. And then all day long, if you watch your mind and you can't help, even if you just stay with the breath, how can you miss what the mind is churning out? <laughs> You're going to see a steady, there's no one solid thing. One of the meanings of empty uh, of this uh, anatta or emptiness is that the, whatever we impute to be me, it's insubstantial. If you just watch everything and come and go, you can't miss that. Nothing lasts. All these characterizations. The mind keeps telling you who you are, representing yourself to yourself. Is that, these are thoughts. They're, you can become aware of them, so they're not the deepest thing about you. And the thought is telling you who you are, and you, we have this ability to be aware of it. So there's something deeper than the thought, than the emotion. It's that which knows. And that's where the practice is going. To to be that which knows. Whatever many names given for it, Buddha nature, original nature, original mind. Uh, When it gets deeper, nirvana, a lot of different words for it. Uh, But if you watch the the passing show, uh, it's impossible to point to anything and say, that's really me, because they're contradictory, they change, they're altered, uh, we change, and nothing lasts. So you realize it's a process. There's no solid. This is me. Now we think there is because one of the things that I, I, I certainly didn't skip this, and I'm, is that when we hear, uh, th- there really isn't a self. You, you know, who you think you are is an illusion. It doesn't feel true, does it? I mean, you feel. Well, wait a minute. I. This is who I, I feel. This is really true. Okay, it's not saying you don't exist. It's not saying that you're a ghost, a phantom. It's saying you aren't in exactly the way in which you have contrived yourself to think you are. Now, as the, so that let's say that there's a flow of coming and going, moods and bodily conditions and thoughts and images, and about the future, about all the stuff that, you, if you watch the mind, it's all come, coming through there. Uh, when we're aware of it, neither grasping or pushing away, not escaping, not, not fighting it, not drowning in it, um, it's, see if that experience is different. Now, in the, in the Buddhist teaching, that might be three seconds, and then you, you grasp onto something again. In those three seconds, you're practicing being free. That's why sometimes this is called the practice of liberation through non-clinging. When we hear liberation, we think of way down the pike, someday I'll be really free and, look, I don't know, a rainbow around, whatever you think is at the end there. Nibbana, nirvana, bells will go off. Steven Spielberg's you know, special effects. <laughs> um, but it's the practice of liberation. That means from moment to moment we enslave ourselves psychologically, and as soon as we see it, we see that grasping, that tight fist. In the seeing, something happens. The fist opens up. The thought just is what it is. Everything is what it is. And in that moment, you feel freer. And then you lose it, and then you come back. Well, that liberation grows if you do it. And sometimes there are dramatic breakthroughs, no denying it. But a lot of it, it's just blue-collar work. <laughs> Keep your denim shirts. Don't throw them out. It's laboring in the vineyard. You know, Sitting after sitting, walking. I know, it's, but it's true. Well, you're free now. People are always very happy at the end of the retreat. <laughs> And, uh, and of course, we assume it's very self-congratulatory, uh, you know that it's because how great the retreats are. It's because school's out, the retreat's <laughs> over. Now you can eat whatever you want and watch tea, everything. OK. Uh, but also some headaches waiting for you, aren't there? Both. 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. Um, so we're pra- so in how you practice, you're already learning. What's skillful and what isn't? Uh, take another very, I'm, I'm taking tiny stuff to go back to the retreat. I'm remaining here for a moment and then we're going to move on. The schedule is over in the evening. And you know, we always encourage you if you feel have energy, then uh, maybe get a drink and then come back, do some sitting or some walking, uh, and then go to sleep, you know. Um, or don't. Okay, now. It, is wisdom involved even here? Does the Kalama Sutra follow us even to the optional sitting? It does. Because let's say if the, you hear that, and if you take the degree to which you are starting to get to know yourself by learning how to be objective, just not thinking objectivity, you're just being sensitive to how you, what your experience actually is, not how it should be. How is it? And if you're genuinely exhausted, genuinely exhausted, Uh, then wisdom might be going to sleep. Or if you have lots of energy, but something you says, ah, just go to sleep anyway, you brought your hot chocolate and animal crackers with you, you know, just go upstairs, and (laughs) you have your your comforting blanket and your toy bunny, you know, Go, go upstairs and go to sleep. But you have plenty of energy. You're wide awake. Then that isn't wise in the context of a retreat here. So then, how do you know when uh, sometimes wisdom is staying and doing some extra practice, sometimes wisdom is going to sleep? No one can tell you. As you get to know yourself, your decisions more and more have some intelligence in them. They're based on an accurate self-understanding, self-knowledge. So that's skillful. And it isn't skillful. For example, often, I've certainly done this in the past, be exhausted, and uh, macho man comes in and sits anyway, you know. <laughs> uh, what have I accomplished? I've fattened up the ego, which now is convinced that it's super, it's super duper, uh, but there's really no, not any, any practice worth the name in it, because what I should have done is gone to sleep. I mean, I did, it took me a while to wise up. See, there's another, there are two kinds of discipline. One, everyone knows about and, we, and it's safer in the short run. But I feel there's some danger with it in the long run. The first kind of discipline is sort of military, rep- repetition. Get up at the same time, sit, walk, sit, walk. there's value in it, and it's safer, because the assumption is, look, if you give people freedom, they're just going to completely take advantage of it. They're not ready for freedom. So just regulate everything. It's kind of being in the army, you know, the Dharma army. OK. Uh, and some of that is necessary, certainly at the beginning. There's another more subtle discipline. You know, I looked it up in the dictionary. Discipline is in the same family, from the point of view of language, as disciple. And and that's the one—a a commitment to practice that, whether you know, Michael and I have been saying this all week, is where you're paying attention, and in a sense, you become a disciple of your own understanding, because you're paying attention and living from within learning how to do that. That's why the art of living doesn't end. Because finally, uh, we have to die. How do we die? Do we die gracefully? Do we die at peace? So I don't see how anyone could say, oh, I'm, I've finished the course. Uh, I'm done. You can say it, but for me, graduation is when the time comes to die. And you might say, well, but you're a big Dharma teacher. Uh, haven't you, You're not frightened of death anymore, are you? So no, I'm not. That would be stupid. Because come around when I'm dying—that's graduation—and I'll either tell you from the other side, or you know, or you'll see for yourself. So it's—but if you enjoy the process, some sometimes we make it into such a grim. It's always achieving something, getting somewhere. Endless degrees and diplomas, invisible ones here, but they're still here. Some professor who drove you mad—he's still here, or she. Sorry. Oh no, if it's bad, it can't be a woman, right? Just only bit the guys that are the bad guys. All right. Uh, or some uh my wife had a math teacher in the fourth grade. You know, it's he's from Soviet Union. You know, she's 65. Uh he's still alive and well. I'm sure he's long dead. He's still, you know, you can't do that's you're no good at this. you know, just stay away from that. Just make borscht and be happy with that. <laughs> you know. Uh, what is that? That means the stuff in the mind. It's, it's coded. We're liberating ourselves from our story. It's not we don't have a story. Of course we have a story, each one of us. And it can be fascinating. And we've learned something, but, it's, but we actually inhabit the story. We invented it. We wrote it. We directed it. The music is being played by us. Popcorn is being given by us. Uh, we built the theater. It's us. We rate it. We give ourselves academy awards or not. We're the leading person. We're the villain. We're the good person. Um, It's unexamined. So here it's sort of like we're watching that show. Uh, If you can enjoy the process of learning, so this other kind of discipline is sensitive. You're developing sensitivity, which I feel in the long run will, will will be more helpful. Sure, there are a lot of things in life that we have to do, it's sort of military style because it has to be done. If you're a surgeon, you can't come in and you're about to say, "I didn't get a good night's rest last night," in the middle of opening someone up, and just say, uh, "I think I'll take a break." And Uh, line, uh you have to you do your best. So it's the same for all of us, parents. You know, if you if you've been a parent or are a parent, you know sometimes you're exhausted, but you still have to do certain things for children. So, but this other, it's a quiet discipline. It's not sexy. It's this enjoying of learning about how you live as you live out your life. It's an ongoing kind of learning. You can't learn it in school. We can talk about it and encourage you, but that's it. So, okay, so now we're heading home. Um, For the beginners, because many of you already know this, it's very, very important to establish a daily sitting practice. It's very important. Now I'm emphasizing that normally everyone emphasizes it, but I'm triply emphasizing it because we've paid so much homage to daily life that you might think, "Well, my practice is just daily life. I don't need to sit. Uh, I'm just my." Uh, as a friend of mine told me, "I have a, three living Zen masters. His three children. Yeah, well, how come then? You're, you, how come that you're so enslaved then? How come you're not free? Are you free yet? No. Well, so who are these Zen masters?" They're just children. you know. Are you learning from them? Yes, they could serve to liberate you, but so could anything. Anything can liberate you if you're willing to learn from it. Life is really finally the great master in this approach. So the reason I'm emphasizing is we don't underestimate the value of retreats or sitting at home, finding time, doing uh, now and then, perhaps getting a morning off and just doing some sitting and walking on your own at home. We don't. But we're saying is most of your life will not be lived on the cushion. And it will be lived, you know what your life is. So if we don't learn how to take care of merely, probably 99% of our life, the practice isn't going to amount to very much. It would be a, sort of a, a rarefied flower or something you run to once a year. Every year I come to IMS, get my batteries recharged, all right, right. And then we go home and we behave foolishly for the year and time to go to IMS, get a, get a cleaning, detox, <laughs> and run back and make a fool of ourselves, come back. Uh, how about if we view it as life unfolded, it's just life, and which IMS and other places like this play a very important role. So. For those of you new, please establish a sitting practice. How long should you sit is a common question. I haven't got a clue, I don't know. I could say 40 minutes in the morning, 40 minutes in the afternoon, with great confidence. People say that. 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. That's good, that's perfect. Oh, thank you very much, Bonte. Right. Uh, it's different for each person. For one person, 20 minutes is an ordeal. Here you had to. You know, you're, you're, uh, we're, we're running the show, you're trapped. When you go home, there's so many outs waiting for you, refrigerators and TV sets and Netflix. and We'll get to that. All right. Uh, okay, so figure out. Let's say you, you see that over, in general, it seems like 20 minutes uh, seems to be right for you. Then go to 25. Challenge yourself a little bit. That's how you learn. But if you overdo it, it becomes an ordeal, dreary, grim, and You'll soon be. uh, This will be a a, an old memory that you file away with a lot of uh, with kindergarten and other. Yeah, I did IMS in uh, 2012. It was cute out there. There, you know, it's a nice place. Very nice. You go. (laughs) Okay. Um, So work it out. If it's 40 minutes, fine. So and little by little, I think you'll see. Countless people have seen this it grows naturally as you ripen, as the practice ripens, as you start to see the fruit. If you do see it, I hope you do. It's been going on for quite a while. Uh, then more and more, you, the, the, quite naturally, the length of your sitting will increase. It isn't, it isn't clocking how much time on the cushion. That's you know, Like, if you, the more you sit, the wiser you'll get. Do you think that's true? How could it be? It'd be nice if it were true. We just get a little meter, you know, and then we get 20 minutes here, you know, 40 minutes here. You know, oh, I am wiser. But I haven't seen it work that way. So it depends on what you do with the cushion, on the cushion. It depends what you do with your life. Are you learning? Are you putting the, uh, the practice to a test? Otherwise, how can you even test the, uh, the Buddha's teaching or whatever? Unless you test it to see if, it's, if this does lead to the end of suffering, to begin with, particular kinds of suffering, or does it just create more suffering? Test it. Use the Kalama Sutta. Okay. Um, so now, uh, so sitting is, is still valuable. Coming to retreat centers is still valuable, and so is your life. How could it be less valuable than this? Uh, it's all life, as far as I can tell. All we have is our daily life. This is, we're not going back to the real world. As so many people, t- uh, th- is this not real? This five days is just. But what has it been? It's quite real. Just different, correct action here. What's corrected here? It's a different uh, set of conditions and situation, designed to help us accomplish certain things. Now it's over. Now we're going into a world which, if it were designed by a madman, let's say. These people have been meditating for five days. Let's see if we can screw up their lives. You know, first thing we do as soon as they drive out of here, let's have a police car go by with a loud siren. Then hey, cut them off at the highway, and then let's have a, tra- a traffic jam when they get to the first toll booth. And then have someone insult them when they go to stop off at a... Uh, pay, and then have the food be no good when they stop off at uh, these stations where you stop. Let's see how their wonderful a samadhi is now. <laughs> okay, if you try to hold on to what you've got here, it's, you're attached to what you got here, or what you think you got here. You will suffer. But if you see that as the mileage ticks off, if you're driving home, your samadhi starts to get, go down. More miles, less samadhi. <laughs> and then you say, I wasted my time. No, because if you see that you're suffering, if you see the attack that you got attached to these conditions designed to help us accomplish certain things, and if you 're willing to learn from how you just turned it into suffering, sure it's not going to be it's, something will happen because we don 't have those conditions anymore. so with practice, you don't care if the policeman is whatever anyone does it 's all okay I mean it won't be, but then you start you see the reactions, and uh, now i 'd like to Okay, so be prepared because everything out there is designed to destroy what we've been doing for the whole week. Okay, maybe you already know that. People who love us, they're waiting. I love him, but I. Or her, sorry. Okay, enough of that. Um, let's get to the term yogi. You've been called that a lot this week. Do any of you know what it means? <laughs> Sounds good. Twenty-two yogis, three yogis. Uh, and when I ask people in this, and some people actually don't like it. I've been, this is not my opinion. And I said, why? He said, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who walks around with a yoga mat and a flask of water, you know, going through, you know, and uh, leotards, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I've never done yoga in my life. I don't intend to. I don't have the figure for it. No, I mean, I'm not going to do it. So, why do you call me a yogi? Because you think yoga, a yogi is someone who just does those physical life. Yoga is a much broader, it includes, of course, very deep meditation. The fact that it has come to stand for having a firm butt and nice thighs. That's not yoga's fault. That's you know, there are great yoga masters. Tears are streaming down their cheeks. Krishnamacharya. That's a lineage I trained in. Poor, he's sobbing away. What are they doing to this precious, beautiful teaching? So it has other now. Buddha Dasa, who was one of my main teachers in Thailand, he pointed out, and it's clearly true. Uh, all the religions and traditions are borrowing from each other the Buddha didn't make up all of this from scratch. A lot of it, you can see uh, the origin of it in Vedic times in India. You see some of it in the Upanishadic times. And then there's some stuff he really gave a, a quite original and brilliant twist to. Uh, it goes the other way as well. Uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he came hundreds of years after the Buddha, and you can see he borrowed from the Buddha. And it's been documented by scholars. They know that. So. Uh, what Buddha Dasa said, we should borrow this term "yogi" uh, from the Hindus because it's officially a Hindu term. And one of the meanings, and this is what the one I, I use, because for me it's a beautiful term. Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a very wonderful Hindu text, uh, the yogi. One of the definitions of the yogi is of of, a yogi, of yoga is skill in action. I think that's what we've been saying all week. We're trying to learn how to develop skill in action. Uh, Action meaning everything, in in living. And I like that. Now if you ask most people if you go to Burma, they'll just say it means a meditator, and that's fine. Tibetans might say it's someone devoted to coming to the emptiness, original mind, and then living there, protecting it, and living from there. That's true too. So it's all good. It does mean those things, but I like that particular meaning, so I'm going to go along and borrow it from Hindus. Any Hindus here who resent it? I'm giving you a footnote, you know, okay, uh, because it's a good term for the human race to have. It's It doesn't belong to any particular religion. Uh, so skill in action. now. Now we come into relationship. I, I have to, you know, look, you, we've been telling you about be mindful while you're brushing your teeth, while you're eating, while you, so you've heard that till it's coming out of your ears, right? Okay, but the big one is relationship. Isn't it? That's the one the human race has, we've gotten, if F, if there's a lower grade than F, we've gotten it. It's like we have not learned anything. Our technology, our science, our knowledge, magnificent. Brilliant. That's that other kind of intelligence. Wonderful. But somehow it may have been at the expense of another kind of intelligence, which you can call wisdom if you like. And if you look around, we don't learn from history, even though that supposedly we study history to learn from it. My own, uh, I've read some history, and I feel what I learned from history is that we don't learn from history. Uh, and uh, no historian is going to say that. Maybe some do. I'm not a historian. Um, but clearly the evidence is in front of us. War is still going. Everyone is talking about peace and preparing for war. And it's been going on. It was bow and arrows. Now, maybe this is the curriculum. All right, you're assigned to planet Earth. These folks are hopeless. They're just going to kill each other off all the time. Your job in this course is to learn how to be sane amidst all these nuts you know, who talk about peace and kill each other off, okay? who talk about all these nice things and in politics are doing aggression and, in, and interpersonal relationships and uh, we, and just reduce it to ourselves. Everyone wants a peaceful world. Well, are you peaceful? Do you have inner peace? How can you have an, a peaceful world with six billion egomaniacs who inhabiting it growing all the time, there's not enough food, There's the air is... How, how are you going to... And each individual is not at peace. If you want to have a peaceful world, start with yourself. And where do you find peace? Where Where is one to look for peace? In the same place that sorrow is. Right here. It's so convenient. It's all in you. So if you start from you, that's that's a major contribution to the human race. If one person can be a little more at peace with themselves, then how can we have a peace if uh, the individuals who want it aren't themselves? I was in the anti-war movement when Vietnam was going on. And I was in, first of the term itself, anti-war. I was in groups of people who, we we did all kinds of daring things uh, to stop the war, pounding on the table, arguing. There was more violence in that room than in Vietnam you know, to get peace. Because the people were not, none of us were at peace with ourselves. It was good. We wanted to stop an external form of brutality and that no one was benefiting from. Uh, But here, we're here for uh, everyone yearns to have inner peace. Wouldn't you like to be? Are you at peace? Sometimes. Well, the practice is designed to help us. Now one of the main ways that reason we're not at peace is relationship. We don't know how to do it, and it's not just countries with each other, or races, or religions, or ethnic groups, or sects, or tribes. Just two people. It's hard for two people to live together. If you're married, you must know what I'm talking about. And it could be a good marriage. You're happy and all that. But isn't your husband, wife, spouse, partner a pain in the ass? because they're not like you. They don't, they don't do everything like you. And if they do, then you complain, wish you'd get your own mind once in a while. you <laughs> are always counting on me, depending on me. Okay, here's, I'd like to make a simple distinction between reaction and response, because I'm going to try to bring a lot together in very little time. And for the beginners, it might be a bit much, but maybe it's a seed that someday will make some sense for you. I don't know, I hope so. Um, we avoid relationship as a practice. It's part of why we run to the cushion. It's part of why we become monks and nuns. Those—it's very difficult. To, those relationships. Um, get me to a nunnery. Get me to a monastery. Get me to a forest cave anywhere. But those people—they're they're nuts out there. You know, <laughs> not me, of course, but they are. <laughs> and so the challenge for us, as I see it, if as Uh, I don't like the term, but it's with us. Lay practitioners. If you're going to be a monk or a nun, all the best. But probably most of us maybe are not going to be. This is it. Your life the way it is, that's it. And the world is the way it is. This is it. I don't mean changes can't happen. But let's start with relationship. Can relationship be a profound Dharma practice rather than a curse? And I, I say it can be. And... Uh, in the following way. I, I'd like to make a distinction between a response and a reaction. As I'm using these terms, reaction is conditioned. It's mechanical. It comes from the past. We have certain tendencies based on, on who we are, how we've been, what we've learned, our wounds, our joys, our rewards, our punishment, you know. And so we have a certain repertoire of how we react. It's, and we sometimes think it's spontaneous. I don't think it's so spontaneous. I think it's just we can't help ourselves. It's, re, it's mechanical. It's conditioned. At least from the point of view of here, it's conditioned. This teaching. Okay. So that when you're in the presence of another person, not just an intimate, but let's say, it, of course, let's say people in your family, close children, so forth, bosses, etc. You have a reaction. You, if you're alive, you we react to everyone. Even if you have no, you say, "Well, I didn't react. I bought a newspaper. I didn't react to the person. So, in other words, you had no re- no reaction to them. All right, that's what happened. You didn't even see them. They're not even a person. You just took the paper. gave your now it's two dollars and fifty cents. The New York Times. It's outrageous, but anyway. Uh, so that's so something is going on all the time. Uh, and from the point of view of Dharma, it's mechanical. It's a reaction. It's you're behaving." from yesterday's news, from yesterday's, it's yesterday, you're seeing from, it's memory. In other words, because words come from the reaction, you have the reaction, and then that forms a conclusion or an image about what's happening in your head. And then words come out and things get done or not done, and they grow from that. That's where they come from. Okay, so that, uh, that is yesterday acting. That's memory in action. Now, a response, here's the practice, so, that you, so we can develop our ability to respond rather than react. Uh, it, the, the, what is asked of us is, a, is a, a, a practice that can be learned. I'm not saying it's easy, but if you're motivated and interested, it can be learned. It's, and it is, while you're paying attention to another person, the other, you don't lose touch with your inner life. So that let's say if I'm attending to you right now, just if you don't mind being used, okay? Uh, I'm looking at you, smiling. That makes me feel good, you know. So I so sometimes like the tides going in and out. Sometimes I'm much more with you, but I haven't lost touch with myself. And sometimes maybe then you give me a dirty look, and I feel, you know. And then I'm a little bit more. uh, With practice, I don't lose touch with you, but I'm also in touch with what you look, your look, what it did to me. And it becomes a flow until you won't, you'll fail at it to begin with over and over and over again. If you don't give up, um, it becomes a very, very rich practice. And it's not simply couples therapy or uh, counseling to have a well-adjusted relationship. Sure, that can help. But it's revealing a lot of things. And here's where it becomes a very deep, the possibilities for being a deep Dharma practice, not inferior to anything else. This is what I've discovered. <clears throat> I hope it makes sense to you if you haven't seen it yet. I've been on long retreats, I mean months, and I have felt completely cleaned out, pure. Just around the corner is sainthood, just waiting for me. <laughs> and then I go home to Cambridge, and all it takes is not even being with someone I know well, someone online who's taking too long, you know, you're waiting online to to pay for your food, and they're about to flash their, their, their credit card, and they say, "No, I think I'll pay by check. Is that okay?" Yeah, it's okay. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it's Michael's impatience that he was talking about the other day. Ooh, he's in deep samadhi. All right. <laughs> 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 I don't know if you see what I'm doing. I'm trying to filibuster so they don't get to ask questions. <laughs> uh, you did it last. You did. It. <laughs> You did it last night. It's my turn. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay. So then what gets flushed out is selfing, like nothing else. If you want to learn about, let's say if you hear the Buddhist teaching, and I would recommend, I don't think they sell it in our bookstore, but maybe. It's by Buddha Dasa, who was one of my main teachers, and it's called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. And it's a very practical discussion of uh, not-self emptiness, and emptiness in this tradition would be empty of what? Empty of attachment to me or mine. In other words, even the thought can go by. The, who do you? Let, let me take you to the most trivial one because this has happened more than once. My wife will say, "You still haven't taken out the garbage. You said you would hours ago," and I can. That's she doesn't even say it in a mean way, and. I can feel like i 'm being blamed, you know, sort of like suddenly self is large as life, uh yeah, but i 'm doing other things. Have you seen noticed that i 'm also doing this, and that 's near I will get to the, the the you know now that might be true, but I can also feel with practice you can feel selfing just surfaces and it 's got so much energy over nothing. Can you imagine when it 's more substantial so there 's rich material here now when in one, of the po- one of the things I learned from Buddhadasa regarding this is that when selfing happens, in other words, let's say you attach, let's say the, the phrase, you're not a good yogi, you know, like in the sitting, but now it's in interaction. It, that comes up. And if mindfulness is with it, at the moment that the sel- this notion about yourself comes up, it's benign. It's not that we're trying to kill anything, get rid of the self, so what, is be- what we're emptying the, con- the content of the mind, we're emptying our- ourselves of the attachment, so different notions as being who we really are, because they're not true, and they cause a lot of suffering for us and the people in our life. So to go through that, that would be a response. Now, as you get better at being with your responses, with reactions, they start losing their power. The mind becomes more still. That also happens from coming to places like this, sitting each day. Little by little, you'll see it's possible for stillness to be present in the midst of action. Stillness in the midst of action. I would call it engaged stillness. That is, it's not reserved for special quiet places. To begin with, we need protection to learn how to do it. But little by little, now if you start getting good at becoming aware of your reactions, not judging them. If you judge them, then you're reacting to the reaction. You see that they lose. They start withering away, falling away, falling away. And what it's replaced with is a relative degree of clarity or cl- clarity and peace. The mind is a little bit more empty of me and it can be really empty of me. Then from that, remember I mentioned that a stillness or emptiness, it's a form of intelligence, that we've limited uh, intelligence, we've defined it unintelligently by limiting it to the beautiful human capacity, reason, logic, and so forth, uh, this is an intuitive awareness. But there is, you have to find out for yourself if this is so, or am I just being romantic and fanciful. Uh, out of that clarity of mind, somehow the clear seeing, uh, and this is uh, just to show you that I'm kind of uh, hip and up to date, uh, What streams out of that, you know, like streaming? I just learned how to do it. Netflix, streaming, that's great. Anyway, out of that emptiness streams a kind of intelligence. And you may say the very same thing, but the energy is different, and the person is more able to hear it. Or you may be quiet. In other words, there's no uh, recipe or formula. But the behavior that comes from a quiet, still mind is likely to be based on more accuracy, it's likely to turn out to be kinder and wiser. Uh, and life, it's ongoing learning. It's not like, how do you tell if something is skilled, skillful or unskillful, going back to the Kalama Sutta? That's wisdom's job. Wisdom is what uh, more and more sees this is uh, not skillful. Don't do it. It's going to produce harm. And you might have to then learn how to not do what's harmful. This is good. Please do it. It's skillful it's going to be beneficial for you and for others. And remember, it's not static. If you're with a person, it's, uh, it's dynamic. It's unfolding. As you say something and do something, the other person does. I'll give you a simple, dramatic example from Cambridge, from many, many uh, parents. Uh, I'm consolidating into one parent. Uh, it's always the boy, somehow. Johnny just doesn't clean up his crumbs. It's never Janie. Janie is very neat and tidy, but all right. So Johnny Johnny doesn't, and so the mother at first will tell, please, uh, Johnny, clean up your crumbs after you eat, when the child gets to a certain age. And the next time, and the next time, and it doesn't do it. And the mother patiently says it in a nice way, and then at a certain point, for goodness sakes, is angry, impatient, and reacts. and. Uh, Johnny will do it, but with a you know, bitter face, and it's not going to stick because he's doing it under duress. Now, so then the, how, does the, how can the practice help with something as small as that? But it's not small. It's Michael's example in the restaurant. This is what our life is made up of, very small kinds of interactions. So mothers can learn. Mothers are doing it. They, they see how impatient they are, how annoyed they are. You know, when is this kid going to learn? I've got so many other things to do. I can't keep cleaning up his crumbs, too. As that weakens and falls away, the mother is able to deliver the same teaching, often in the very same words. But the energy is different. It's a response, not a reaction. Now, it, that doesn't come from the sky. You've got to earn it. It comes out of practicing, paying attention. And that's the discipline I was mentioning of a kind of sensitivity, of ongoing learning, where you become a disciple of your own understanding. And it applies wherever you are—restaurants, children, work. You tell me. There's no place where, where it's not. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> Please. I figure one or two I can handle. All right. So many contented campers here. Oh, is there a hand? Oh, sorry. Please. Ben I have a question Sure we um uh open, open yes. meditation. good but i'm finding it really helpful and it's i think for it's for me like um being on like a slow train through a you know big open field of fireflies or something The big open field of what Well, of course, it's like saying, uh, you know, that person can't meditate. W- why is that? Because they just died five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, uh, if you're asleep, okay. But you know, all, do you know all the different uh, techniques to wake up? There are no, you haven't heard them. If you, oh, because on, we, there's a whole litany of it, but some of them are they're quite practical on it. One might be, um, here's what, let's say, in my own practice and in others sometimes. Step number one is the reaction to the sleepiness. Often you're disappointed. Do you, Have you felt that sort of, wow, I was watching all these fireflies and, you know, it's like everything you just said, and now suddenly, okay. And then there's usually very often a reaction, disappointment, annoyance. Has there been with you? Yeah, of course. Now, often that has strong energy. So in the sense, you're piggybacking on its energy. It, it's, it, it's an odd thing. We're tricking the mind. We're saying, "Can you be awake enough to see how sleepy you are?" Uh, but here, we're doing it by bringing awareness to the reaction to the sleepiness. It's again our old friend reactivity. You're seeing that you don't like this because a meditator should be awake all the time. Buddha was the awakened one. And you're my blowing z's, you know. So. Uh, sometimes, not always. There's no always for any of these things. Uh, the energy from that reactivity, when you're aware of it, some of it transfers, and you perk up a little bit. But let's say that doesn't help. Uh, you could also start to, as best you can, become aware of sleepiness itself. Uh, sort of the uh, the posture is sl- uh, uh, starting to keel over. The lids have, you know, whatever that is. The sh- the shoulders going like that thoughts, of the, just as we did the reactivity. Sometimes the mind wakes up by seeing sleepiness itself, the signs, not the word sleepiness. Do you see what I'm getting at? But I, I neglected to mention something else, especially on a retreat like this. First thing I would do is I'd reflect. Um, for example, did I get enough sleep last night? Sometimes it's just simple stuff. I didn't. I didn't sleep well, or I stayed up late. And I, and I, So then that's a practical reason for it. It's helpful to know that. Or it might be, um, uh, I ate too much or I ate too much of a certain kind of food that makes me sleepy. Maybe you've learned that from your experience already or you're starting to learn it now. And so if you're on a retreat, you don't want to eat too much and you want to eat those foods that help the mind stay alert. Uh, not my, the, the, those kinds of foods or the it 's not just quantity it 's even quality, not quality, but certain foods incline the mind to feel heavy, certain to be alert, uh, and certain, some agitated, very agitated so let 's say you say no, I, uh, my eating was I enjoyed it, and it was fine, and uh, that isn 't it. Uh, sometimes, in, even in a reflection it 's an avoidance of a very painful or frightening emotion that 's coming around the bend. And when all else fails, we pull up, You know, we will, we go under the covers, pull the covers, and go to sleep, or try to. Uh, and it may be a subtle way of heading that's off at the pass. You know, so that you don't have to experience it. I'm not saying this is so. I I have no psychic ability. It does happen sometimes. Then we start moving into more sort of I don't know sort of tricks. Well, you could stand up. Of course, you know we've mentioned that. You could blink your eyelashes, your eyes very rapidly. You could stare until your eyes tear. Um, You can experience as if there's a radiant red hot sun inside your skull. And sometimes that radiance will wake you up. Um, Of course, when the break comes, throw some cold water, common sense type things. Uh, Straighten up your posture when you're sitting, put energy into the body. Sometimes that helps. There's one I use, I don't recommend you use it unless you are ready for it, had some training and also the rest of your life is in a condition where this wouldn't be uh, unskillful. Uh, I've had a fair amount of training in working with aging, sickness and death, especially th- those three. And when I'm falling asleep and I want to keep, and I've, it's not because I didn't get sleep, it's, not, it's none of those, I'll contemplate my own death. Wakes me right up. <laughs> 80% of the time, not always. But if you do it and, and you, there's a lot of sadness in your life right now, or you haven't really, you don't know how to do this, I would stay away from it. But some of you have been practicing for a while and know what I'm talking about, just, under, just the reflection. It's, it's skillful use of thought, reflection, oh, I don't have forever. You know, I, I, uh, Sometimes uh, the mind gets inspired by that thought and says, oh, okay. Uh, it it kind of dips into its reserve gas tank and suddenly you perk up again. Yeah, Um, I want to say something about this choiceless awareness in daily life in action. I'm assuming you have some sense of what it is and maybe describing it in daily life might be helpful to even help you understand what it is in sitting. First of all Understand that in having no agenda and just sitting and learning how to not, to to just have no agenda, because to begin with it's often very difficult for us. We want something definite to hang on to. And learning how to just relax and allow life to set, different things come and we don't know what's coming. Now isn't, so it's in a microcosmic way, is preparing the mind for when we go into the world. Uh, the, wor- the wor- world of work, family, and so forth, school, and et cetera, which is also the same thing. Do we know what's coming next? It's- life is uncertain, constantly changing. So we're getting a little bit of practice doing that, learning how to be awake with all the different mind states, happy, unhappy, positive, negative. So some of that can transfer into daily life, which is just an extension of that. It's the same life principle. Here's the example. I use it a lot. Some of you... And because it's, it was a turning point in my own practice many years ago, um, I'm walking along the Charles River in Cambridge, and it's a beautiful Sunday in the spring. Couples are out holding hands, and families picnicking, and the, 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 the rowers are doing their thing, and uh, it's everyone's happy. And uh, you know, walking along, and I'm walking right along the river. There's a path, and I have this panoramic awareness where. As I'm walking, I'm aware of the beauty of the sky, the water, the green the grass, uh, experiencing the joy of being able to move. Less so now, but I mean, then it was. And it's, it's kind of all-inclusive, panoramic, global kind of awareness. Uh, it's not that I made myself be that way, because choice awareness sometimes is like that. But then in a second it changed. A car is turned over. There's someone lying on, on the, the highway right adjacent to, uh, to the river, and people are starting to gather around. There's an accident, and the person's lying on the ground. So it's not like, well, I've got to keep the sky and the, uh, the birds chirping and the rowers and the couple as I go there. Quite naturally, life, then it became much more focused naturally. No, who cares what, how the sun is out or that people are picnicking? That became irrelevant, and then it became much more zoom lens. Do you see what I'm getting at? Because I focused on the situation. Is there anything that can be done? Someone's lying on the street. Do you see what I'm getting at? So that sometimes the mind don't lock into a certain way that choices awareness is supposed to be. Sometimes it's something arrives, arrives, and it's very strong, and we're with it for as long as it's there. We open up to it, receive it. At other times, it's just a lot of fle- fireflies just flitting by. Sometimes just an open awareness to the silence. Uh, at other, whatever it is, whatever's there. So it's we're learning how to be not only alert but pliable, flexible. Do, do you see what, see what I'm getting at? Are the words clear? Yeah. Okay. Can I scoot one last one? That's it. Please. Yes and no. That is, in one sense, uh, many of, maybe all the the teachers here, there's so many different ones now, and I don't know all of them anymore. Um, In one sense, we're all reading from the same playbook, you know, from central casting. But then there's just so many different ways in which it's developed and different views. So it's, it's not yes and it's not no, because in one sense, but I can't imagine it not being useful for you to come on a retreat. But very, very close to what Michael and I are teaching, I don't know. I don't I, based on my maybe some of some teachers, but I, I don't want to single out who I think are and who aren't, because I don't have confidence in that. Sorry, but it would be it doesn't matter because uh, you know, go ahead. I, I said that some people uh, uh, use those demarcations a lot. I don't. Well, what about it? You want to know where you are or where you should get to? Uh, no, just whether or not, like, like uh, going from beginner, intermediate, advanced. Or, or, I see. To the training and offer here. Yeah, you know, I think there are weekends that are designed more for beginners. Uh, this five day one is an invitation. Many of you are beginners. Uh, many of them really, I think, require more. You just don't walk in because it would be just uh, seven days or two weeks of torture. You're not ready for it. It's better to start slowly. But you're, you're giving maybe the last thing that, is there more to go? Is there more to go with your question? I'm sorry I can't answer it in any better way. I just, yeah. But I would say this, every opportunity to practice, I think, would have some value. This is what, uh, we'll end with this one. Uh, We live in a culture, there's really an abundance of riches now regarding, not on everything, but certainly regarding this now too. Different forms, how many, Tibetan Buddhism and different kinds of Zen and terrible, you know, a lot, and and if you enlarge it, all different religions and spiritual paths and different yogas and it's, and maybe it's because I've been living in Cambridge too long, but there's really a lot of choices. Uh, So people develop Maul mind, not M-A-U-L. You know, the shopping mind. And uh, that can be useful or destructive. Here's what what I'd like to say. If this particular style that Michael and I have been doing our best to deliver for these five days, it may not be for you. We don't, we're not, we, we don't assume that everyone, the whole planet, has to, that this is the onlyest way. This, I think, is a good way. It's proven for many people, but not for everyone. If for some reason you feel this really, you know, trust yourself. It isn't what one person call a path with heart for you. Uh, weigh it, and don't conclude that you're not cut out for meditation. It, then you should go to the mall. Try something else. If you're really connected with any path, this or any other, and it really feels that this is right for me, then don't go to the mall. You'll drive yourself crazy. And because people do that and they dilute the practice by a little of this and a little of that, you're needing endless different flavors of of practice. Um, Now, when you've been practicing for a while, you can benefit from a lot of things. But to begin with, if this is working, develop it. And I don't mean literally just us. This somewhat this style. If it's not, don't conclude that you're not, because meditation is a term that's now, it covers a broad range of, of activities. And, and I, I have confidence, a good chance you'll find one that does work. I'm not, not you personally, it may be, but for, for all of us. Okay, could we have a few moments of silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. I think it's safe to say Michael and I feel very grateful we had a wonderful time with you. Honestly, we enjoy this stuff. It's hard work, but we like it. And you all were circus. <laughs> were in the groups, you were very open and put yourself on the line. And just, Some of you just to come here to show up, knowing nothing about meditation, you deserve a medal that you're still here. But, uh, so thanks very much. Um, drive safely wherever you're going. The retreat's over, but life flows on.
1: Take the practice home. Yeah. And I'd just like to say a couple things. One is I, I want to thank everyone for their effort and in um, the sharing of the groups. It's such a, a valuable process for everyone else to c- kind of hear about other people's practice. And it really points to the value of Sangha. Um, and we wanted to invite you to visit our Sangha in Cambridge. Uh, it's not really ours, but it's in Cambridge and we teach there. And there's a website called cambridgeinsight.org. Okay. Yeah, it's a very wonderful website, and it's also a link to other resources like our reading lists and things like that, and it, our schedule and what we offer. Uh, and if you're around Cambridge, if you live there and you didn't know about it, um, come on by. It's a great place to practice, uh, really a thriving community. Uh, and if you're somewhere like New York or somewhere in New England or or you're just traveling through Cambridge, you should stop by for a visit. Uh, So thanks, everybody. Good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.